welcome to Weird Studies, an art and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes and to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Hi, JF here. In this episode of Weird Studies, uh, Phil and I sat down to talk with the philosopher Joshua Ramey. Joshua is the author of two books that are absolutely wonderful and strongly recommended to fans of the show. Uh, The Hermetic Deleuze, Philosophy and the Spiritual Ordeal, and uh, the more recent one, Politics of Divination, Neoliberal Endgame and the Religion of Contingency. In both of these works, Joshua infuses a Marxist critique of contemporary society with a high dose of strangeness. He draws on religion, magic, spirituality, shamanism, divination to develop a compelling vision of a universe where questions of sense or chance or meaning have more than human significance, a world that means something, even if its meaning has to be divined. We had a great discussion that touched on a bunch of topics, um, that are of some interest to Phil and myself and to our listeners, hopefully. One of the main topics of the the day was definitely chance and the nature of chance and the question as to whether the world is truly just a, a random affair or whether sense and sense making are intrinsic aspects of anything that might deserve the name reality. We hope you enjoy the show. Joshua, tell me, tell me what you've been up to recently. Lately, I've been, I've been on kind of an extended sabbatical. I had a, I did have a sabbatical from Grinnell College where I was working up until recently, and uh, I was actually using a lot of that time to study and, and plan for what what might be next for me, both personally and intellectually. But a lot of it has been actually about resting and. Repotentiating, I guess you could say, um, which has involved some some intellectual study, but you know a lot of more personal and physical and um, sort of psycho spiritual practices and 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 upkeep, I guess you could say. But I've been I've been traveling uh, quite a bit and, and looking for people and places to make new connections and new collaborations with, deepening into older friendships. Basically, just trying to build a, a, a richer ecology for myself outside of the university. I, I don't think that I am making entirely a break with with working in the university or teaching in classrooms, but um, I'm definitely in a process of expanding uh, the range of the things I'm trying to do. I've been teaching in you know non-traditional spaces to activist groups, church groups, local communities, teaching out of my house a little bit, teaching seminars online, both on, on my own and for, you know, upstart sort of fledgling new institutional efforts. So it's been a, it's been a time of both sort of pulling back and, you know, trying to catch my breath after, frankly, some pretty, pretty exhausting years, but then also simultaneously looking looking out, looking up, looking around and seeing who else is out there and who wants to try to do intellectual life both within and beyond the the university somehow at this point, because, you know, frankly, my story is far from unique. I think the majority of people who have been trying to be intellectuals or who have been trying to work in and through the university are in very similar positions to me. So, I'm I'm really interested in how we can find each other and how we can connect and how we can, yeah, try to, you know, be creative about extending our work, extending our vitality as 
teachers or <clears throat> intellectuals in the context of just the sort of rolling disasters that not only the university has become, but of course, you know, the, the, the massive, massive breakdowns that are going on ecosystemically and politically, you know, all around us. Boy, I could not respond more strongly <laughs> to to uh, to what you just said. I mean, it's what you were just saying reminds me of something that I often like to say, uh, quoting the rocker Andrew W.K., who says, if you can't find the party, be the party. You know, I, I feel fairly comfortable in saying most people who got into academia did so because there's a certain kind of party that we're all looking for. You know, there's there's a special thing that happens, and maybe it happens in your undergraduate classroom or whatever, but you feel that energy kindling to life between people. You know, you fit this little ball of fire that moves from person to person in the development of an idea. And this is like the most exciting thing. And we spend years chasing that. We chase it through graduate school. And the hope is that at the end of it all, there will be an academic position where that'll be where the party is. But, you know, it's funny. I can speak for myself. I find myself often whipsawed between simultaneously uh, being terrified that everything that I love is threatened, that the humanities are under fire as never before, and at the same time feeling that if the whole edifice just slipped into the sea, maybe that would be better for everybody. You know, and I find myself asking questions just like, okay, what we are doing is really valuable. I really do believe that. I believe that the intellectual work that, for example, your stuff represents, we're contributing something valuable. There's something important happening. But if you can't have faith in the institutional structures that basically monopolize the, the places where that happens, what are you going to do? And talking about like looking for alternative spaces, which I think folds also into alternative forms of intellectual praxis, I respond very strongly to that. I mean, this is why I wanted to do a podcast. It is at least one alternative, uh, I don't know if institutional is the right word, but it's one alternative form, a practical form that certain conversations can take that they couldn't take even a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no. Um, so I like the word form actually a lot better than institution. I'm going to I'm gonna riff on that <laughs> um, cool. going forward. But um, yeah, no, all kinds of resonances for me too. I mean, I... I've been really impressed lately by um, uh, an intellectual in, in Canada that, that maybe the two of you have heard of. Her name is Vanessa Andriotti. She's at uh, University of British Columbia, and she's she's got some really incredible language, I think, around where we're at as as educators, as intellectuals, as teachers in the context of what she really describes, I think, pretty accurately as as an undoing of, of illusions, you know, it's, it's what we're living through, I think, on one level is a kind of cascading series of of apocalypses in the in the in the technical sense of the of, of revelations. So, you know, the the Greek word for apocalypse, the Greek word apocalypsos just means the act of taking wool off of a sheep, and, and you know, it's it, <coughs> I think it's a great image for where we're at. I mean, one of the major illusions that I think is crumbling is that this, the, the, the whole possibility of there being the kind of party that most of us were drawn to, like you were saying, Phil, was almost entirely accidental and contingent upon the, the Cold War creation of the public university in, 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 at mid-century, which was, which was never intended to to empower a, a democratic polity or to, you know, or to create openings for, you know, non-elites, non-aristocrats, basically, to, to get together and study and plan, which is how, how Fred, Fred Moden and Stefano Harney talk about it in um, their fantastic book, The Undercommons. I don't know if you're familiar with that. No. I think that you're, you're right. I mean, there's, and, and Vanessa also talks about the way in which we have to stay between and within two activities simultaneously right now. And one is an activity of triage and the other is, you know, basically an activity of something like invention or, or, or creation. And so we're, we're in this place where there's a lot of mourning and grieving to do. There's really, 
and from a kind of shamanic perspective that we're <laughs> we're involved in in ushering a lot of a lot of death through this particular moment and we're also you know feeling our way in dark toward um as you were saying phil um the potentiality of, a, of many new forms but it's a you know it's a very subtle sort of gyre <laughs> that we're walking yeah, between it those, is. those activities all the time um one of the way I, i've always found your work to be particularly sub- subversive in, in the most positive sense, Josh. And one of the ways it's subversive is that you you go much further than, like there's a certain Marxist critique of institutions that is viable, but also easily ab- absorbed back into business as usual for the system. Would you agree with that? Yeah. yeah. But in your work, I find a pushing much further, like some of the ideas that you revive, some of the affordances you find, for example, in, magical religious or divinatory traditions it feels to me like you're really trying to, to push thought in sectors that are i think that would be considered rather uncomfortable for most uh trained academics so h- how did you develop an interest in those things and how do how do these ideas or how do these interests play into your to your politics yeah well i mean there's a, there's a couple different ways to narrate this but I mean, on some level, I think you'd both agree that one doesn't make a decision in a way about the kind of you know intellectual that that you are, right? I mean, it's I'm very Nietzschean about this, I guess. That it, you know, we, we have certain kinds of instincts or you know dispositions or affect that deeply drive the relationship that we have to rationality or to reasoning or to to thinking. You know, Nietzsche in in Deleuze's book on Nietzsche, he's has this beautiful passage about you know, how Nietzsche believed that we we have the truths that we deserve based on the the element we frequent and the hour over which we watch. Right. You know? And I think in a lot of ways, my own relationship to rationality and, in, and to political rationality comes from my formation in in religious communities. In, I'm, I'm the product of several generations of of evangelical Christian ministers. Mm. Um, my my first encounter with the life of the mind was in the context of preaching and studying from the Bible, and philosophy on some level was a kind of a way for me to sort of cope with both the intensity and the limitations of the kind of theology that I was exposed to, which was more than a set of ideas, it was a set of life-or-death issues, basically, for people in the in the community that I grew up in, and the thing that was impressive on me from a very young age is is that the, the the word is alive. There really is no such thing as purely abstract thought or pure rationality. That you know every every proposition is a kind of hortatory, mm-hmm. right? That there's an edge, there's an angle, there's like there's a- something at stake. Yeah, yeah. The word becomes flesh not once and once only, but as a matter of fact, like that every logos is embedded in a historical situation. Is that what you're trying to say? That like, like yeah, that, and and in a, in a very radical way, in the sense that you know, a preacher like my dad would say a lot of the same things every Sunday, right? I mean, the fact that the the word has to be renewed, you know, every every day, is I think something that made a huge impression on me. You know, it, it's. The preacher's experience, in a, in a certain way, is a, is a kind of embodied divination. The preacher preacher has to bring the entire pathos of his experience, and and because of the tradition that I came from, it is almost exclusively men men doing this. And there is actually something very significant about that, because patriarchy and paternalism had a, a huge impact and traumatic influence on my development, for sure. But this idea that the preacher brings his whole life to the word in a moment, right? That's a kind of divinatory act. Right. right? The, you know, the, the preacher's calling, in a way, is to, is to live the same life as everyone else did that week, but more intensely and more exposed to the sort of the power of the word in order to then render the truth of everyone else's experience from that kind of intensified point of view. Right. That's right. a cool that's a cool notion. I mean, you're you know, retrieving from something that 
probably a lot of people listening to this are going to be like, oh, yeah, I know what that is. You know, an evangelical preacher, I know what that phenomenon is. But you're drawing out of that something that I think is really interesting, which is thinking about utterance as, um, when you say it's like the logos has to be renewed, it's utterance coming out of a specific moment in time, but coming out of a person who is himself or herself, as we've said elsewhere in the show, an event also, a configuration of forces and materials at a particular place in time. The idea that there is a kind of originality, a, a, a kind of radical originality in being, just in being a person, but that the kind of speech that you're talking about, the kind of utterance that you're talking about is bringing that, uh, bringing that shared condition forth into an unmistakable performance. Does that make any sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the the preacher's task, in a way, is to be convincing that the word still holds today, right? Mm-hmm. And, of course, the, you know, and the, the way that is done, in a strange way, is that the preacher, in a certain sense, sort of depersonalizes the events that, that nevertheless happen to him or, or, or her in, in that week or whatever, but it's almost, it's almost a kind of Deleuzean structure from the logic of sense. Um, it de- depersonalizes the event to render it as sense for the community. But that is that is something that, that is incredibly concrete at the level of the performance. The the emotions, the you know, right down to the, the tie that is <laughs> picked out for that week, you know. Yeah. Um, um, so, yeah, I mean, in a way that partly because I... I have gone so far away from these communities and you know I, I i don't identify in any way at all with evangelical christianity anymore or or its various subcultures you know i had to i don't run away literally from my past for a long time but but being able to look back at it and appreciate it from this point of view makes me see how much it set me up of course for the way i teach for the way that i i practice divination for the way that i think about the relationship between performance and concepts and events. Yeah, like like you were just laying out, Phil, for sure. And there's a sort of a hallmark, I don't, I don't know if I want to say a hallmark of your work, but something that I've noticed about your work, particularly in Politics of Divination, which I love, which is an amazing book, it's this ability to see under the very familiar lines of, of stuff that we see every day, you know, like... I don't know, like consumer capitalism or like an evangelical preacher. Things where we're like, yeah, I know what that is. You You can see the lines of things that are much more ancient and much stranger. So the idea of looking at neoliberalism and seeing it as a vast form of unavowed and perverted divination, that would never have occurred to me and probably wouldn't have occurred to many others either. But to me, it is 100% convincing and it's an insight not dissimilar in form to the insight that you just articulated about ministry. The sense that uh, taken for granted things, I'll put it this way, like, you know, magic, divination, matters of the spirit, these things didn't go anywhere, but they exist in unavowed and very often debased forms. And this is a very interesting way of thinking. Yeah, well, one of the ways that you you do that in in the piece that we were ostensibly going to discuss, I don't know if we'll get there, but uh, your piece on Mia Su's book, when you point out that even the process of hypothesis formation in science, and here you're drawing on, on Charles Pierce, is in a sense a form of divination, that to choose one hypothesis over another involves a kind of like divinatory reaching into the real to see something about the possibilities that are actually on the table in a particular situation, that there's a divinatory act even in that. So, yeah, if you could just talk about the, the role of divination in, in knowledge formation, in history, in politics, that's, that's probably like one of the keynotes of your work, I would say. I guess I'm very delusion about all this on some level. I really do experience ideas as, 
as these sort of forces that need to come from from outside me. Like I, I oftentimes feel like I'm I'm channeling when I'm thinking and when I'm writing. Um, I don't want to be too grandiose about that. You know, I'm not like you know drooling over my laptop and having seizures. <laughs> but, um, you know, I am. Well, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, well, although, you know, I get really close to that in other activities, like, like drumming. Or dancing, but, um, but no, I mean, it is it's, it's thought. I do think thought is a form of channeling. And Deleuze has some pretty powerful passages about this in different repetition. We're talking about the idea and why ideas sort of befall us, you know. But mm-hmm. most of the time when I was writing the neoliberalism book, you know, I, I was in the back of my mind, of course, I was thinking that I was completely crazy, like, that, like who's going to take this seriously? And I'm making a difficult problem more obscure, you know, and all the things. But in any case, you know, here I stand, I, I can't do otherwise. So, you know, now my task is sort of figure out what it was I was trying to say while I was saying it. I guess, why is divination such an interesting sort of general model for knowledge and action and maybe praxis in the Marxist sense? And it, it, it threatens a good a good concept maybe threatens to explain too much you know um um so i'm i'm cautious of that but i can put it in in terms of the the way i approach this idea or maybe the insight i feel like i had about it when i wrote the piece on mayasu because i know you're interested in talking about that so this is going to be pretty abstract metaphysically and then we'll make it more concrete but basically when i when i read mayasu i i felt like there was something very important missing in his account of contingency. You know, Matt has this you know project where he wants to do some interesting things with this idea that reality as we know it is radically contingent, that even the laws of science are radically contingent. And, you know, he tries, tries to draw, I think, some pretty interesting conclusions from this idea. But, you know, there's an interesting ambiguity if you look at the history of philosophy in the notion of contingency, actually, Hegel articulated this really well, is that contingency has a kind of double meaning. You know, on the one hand, when you say something is contingent, you're saying, well, it it could have happened or or not, right? It was sort of possible that an event took place or that it did not, right? So that's one sense of saying that it was, you know, contingent as to whether one team or the other won the, you know, one of the World Cup games yesterday or something, right? But then there's this other, this other sense of contingency that has always been there in the in the tradition in the West anyway, since the medievals, which is that we can say that a being or an event is contingent if it exists in a relationship of dependency on another event or another being. Right. That's what we mean when we say contingent upon, right? That's right. Exactly. 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 And, What's interesting is that I noticed that Mayasu was not dealing with that second sense of contingency in his work. And I don't want to waste too much time with my criticism of him in the article and all that. I think it would take us down a too difficult path for now. But my basic thought was that, well, okay, if the universe is contingent in this very radical sense, that there's, there's no necessity in things being the way that they are, that doesn't mean that there isn't a very particular and peculiar sense to the actual set of relationships that exist in a particular world. So, like, I could say that this entire universe as we've experienced is radically contingent, but if that's the case, it's also the case that the events of this world have particular dependency relationships with one another or a kind of interrelationship. The world has any kind of interrelationship with itself that e- even if it's contingent, nevertheless has a certain sort of weight or gravity to it that while you know not being necessary, nevertheless makes this world determinate in ways that no other world is. Yeah, I, 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 and that, I mean, and this is a very abstract point, I, I know. Um, but go ahead, jump in. Yeah, it's it's actually a very it, it sounds abstract, but it's not because it deals with a fundamental problem of modernity, which is the idea of the meaninglessness of the world. Right? I'm just translating this into terms anybody can understand. Miyasu says the world is radically meaningless. Things exist for no reason at all, 
and he's as you point out brilliantly he's totally caught up with one idea of contingency but the problem that you point out with his idea of contingency when he says the world is radically contingent is that his contingency can't distinguish between abstract possible worlds and actual worlds and just to put it really concretely and correct me if i'm wrong here josh but if I talk about a, an egg, if I say this egg is contingent, it could exist or not exist, and the world wouldn't be affected beyond that. Like, it's just, you can imagine a world with this egg existing and a world with this egg not existing. Or you can imagine a world in which this egg, like, hatches, or this egg rots, or this egg turns into a car. You know, you can imagine all kinds of contingent things that render the concept of that egg radically contingent in itself. But in order for the egg to be an egg to begin with, in order for the egg to be to be something that is contingent, it needs to be actual. It needs to exist as an egg. And Meyasu's idea of contingency can account for how things move from the realm of pure abstract possibility to actual embodiment in a moment where it can be spoken of as contingent. And that type of contingency is innately relational. It has to exist within a set of relations. So in other words, you can have a world that's radically contingent, but you can't have a world that's without meaning. And that's, that's kind of what I drew from your piece. And does that make sense to you? Does that jibe with? No, I mean, you, <laughs> you summarized my point a lot more succinctly and, and clearly than, than I did there. Uh, that, that's exactly right. Basically, my, my argument then is that if it's true that you cannot have a, a world that's contingent and a world that's, that's meaningless, then the, the real site of thought or contemplation or, or reflection becomes this inquiry into the, the very particular dynamics of actualization that pertain to the contingent world that we happen to be part of or, or exist in. And that, that is precisely the, the work of divination. And right. this, is, this is why at the end of that article, I point to divinatory uh, logic as a sort of a form of thinking or a form of reasoning that, you know, Maysu doesn't consider, but yet would have to be absolutely uh, essential to and crucial to understanding a world that is, is contingent but not meaningless, a world, a world that is defined by the very particular relationships that are unfolding in it, even though those relations are utterly unpredictable by rational means. Right, right. These are hard ideas to think in some ways because we've gotten so used to thinking of chance and randomness or chance and uh, like unmeaning chance. We've gotten so used to the idea that that is the only game in town. The, that when we say chance, we mean something that by definition can't mean anything. The idea of meaningful chance, therefore becoming something of a, an oxymoron, except, of course, meaningful chance exists in a very real way for gamblers, for example, and it exists in a very real way for anybody who practices divination. Some of these ideas may seem formidably abstract on the one hand, but on the other hand, they're also, if you put in a lot of time doing the I Ching or tarot or whatever, like not that abstract, like there's a line that you have in uh, contingency without unreason which I highlight, and for the longest time I was like, what the hell does this mean? Uh, the divining cause represents, paradoxically, the aleatory nature of intelligibility as such. That is to say, it demonstrates a reasoning that is by nature occasional, not so much subject to chance as taking chance as its subject. And that, to me, seems, that seems like a significant sentence. Maybe you could, uh, rather than me telling you what I think it means, I could just ask you, what, so, so how would you parse that? I mean, th this gets to actually a lot of the things in my Politics of Divination book that I tried to make concrete by looking at the way that we think about markets and speculation, as well as gambling, as you already mentioned. But the other person who doesn't think that chance is meaningless is, is the financial speculator, which is a person that has enormous cultural power, maybe even supreme cultural power at this moment in the history of capitalism. The idea that you could take chance as the subject of thought or that, you know, that, that there would be such a thing as an aleatory intelligence or an intelligence of the aleatory, I mean, to, to cut to the chase, it means on some level that reality at an ontological level, that reality is just performative, that 
in some very, very deep sense that's very hard to parse. We can actually induce chance or, or participate with something like chance. And it, it, this is very difficult to discuss, partly because the whole notion that we have, as you mentioned, from the modern era of, of chance as being random is deeply, deeply unstable. I mean, one of the, one of the really interesting symptoms of this, right, is that in almost every language, including ancient Greek, there's more than one word for chance. Right. There's in, in France, you have, you know, la chance and, and hasard. You have, uh, in English, you have, you know, chance and randomness. Happenstance is an old English word. And then both going back to Greek, you know, Lacan was really interested in this. You know, there's the two different words in Aristotle for chance, touke and automaton. And this is something that is really interesting to me. Because on, on, on some level, there is no such thing as uninterpreted chance or un, unmediated chance. And I think that's part of what our language is reflecting back to us. Um, mm. Because if, if, let's just stick with English for a minute, right? If you try to think of an event that's purely random, right, you basically end up thinking about a radical form of determinism. Right. You actually end up thinking the opposite of chance, mm. right? The more you try to imagine a totally random event, and, and the paradigm for this, of course, is the interplay of molecules in a, in a gas within a, right. a, a, in a gaseous state within a, a fixed container, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that that, that that container is bounded is absolutely crucial, and it's also absolutely crucial that the particles involved in so-called randomness be homogenous. They can't be, you know, internally uh, differentiated from one another, right? You have to have a very, very highly controlled situation, a very constrained situation to, to generate anything like an image of, of meaningless randomness, right? Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, the harder you try to push toward the meaninglessness of chance or something like pure randomness, the more you end up talking about a universe of ironclad physical laws. Which, by the way, is a kind of Laplacian fantasy, which neither physics nor biology really has very much time for, you know, since, I don't know, at least, you know, mid-20th century, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and yet, and yet, this idea, this idea of some kind of meaningless randomness at the level of forces or particles or something is still the starting point that you get from all of the popularizations of biology and physics, obviously yeah. right down Dawkins and all of the other folks, right? Right. But I'm not as up on the contemporary science as I'd like to be, but my sense is that if you really press them, scientists would be a lot more careful about this, you know, but I think the prejudice is still there. You're right that, that, that when you say chance, you're saying randomness. Okay. Um, yeah, this is super... I, I, I have more to say, but let me, let me pause there. Yeah, come, come on in. Phil and I like to point out the kind of like... Um absurdities of modern thinking and or some of the paradoxes or some of the legitimates or like sleights of hand that are committed in the name of modernity for for instance this is a good example modernity outwardly posits chance as the governing force of the universe but really what modernity means by chance is the absence of chance is an absolutely ironclad mm. determinism and in fact, you could uh, sketch, out, sketch out a concept of modernity that w- could be summarized as the effort to eliminate chance from the universe, to eliminate the openness of fortuna, chance, whatever, so that things are just completely determined. Like chance as modern thinking sees it is more like an epistemic kind of category of, oh, it's so complex that it might as well be chance. Like there's so many variables that we can't predict, therefore it's, it's just random. But it's not actually random, it's a purely causal process. Whereas chance in the class... Yeah? Sorry? No, no, go ahead. Yeah. And, and chance in the more classical sense means an openness of the future that is inseparable from an idea of meaning, of what things signify. It's a totally different way of looking at chance. Like whatever happens when I cast a die... In the classical sense, in the old sense of chance, or in the more divinatory sense of chance, let's call it, what number comes up means something. Because this is a type of chance that is all about the ontological nature of the world itself, and not just my incapacity to calculate the outcome of a process. That's right. And I 
the, the step I take, I mean, that's all, I'm completely on board with all that. And I, I think that the, the, the step that I try to take in the politics of divination book is in some ways a, a kind of extension of what Ian Hacking was doing, but I think Foucault is doing even more, which was is to say, essentially, the, the shift into chance as purely epistemic is far from politically neutral. Right. Right. And for me, neoliberalism is, in a certain way, just a symptom of this. I mean, my book announces itself as being about neoliberalism, but I'm, what I'm, I'm really much more interested in this the fact that the persuasiveness and pervasiveness of these neoliberal endgames that we're living through really are a profound symptom of this much deeper problem at the heart of modernity. And basically, I think we can we can summarize that as as saying that the insistence on there being something like a hyper complex set of laws which first has to be determined or discovered before we can investigate the meaning of, of our lives has everything to do with the project of producing basically what Foucault called the, the sciences of, of man and, and the average humanity, which is something that is supposed to be brought into being by precisely a very complex set of rules and strategies uh, for the formation, the, the disciplining and punishing, and then the surveillance and control of, of bodies, which ultimately you could say is about the disciplining and controlling of chance, right? At mm -hmm. the level of the motions of the organism, the, the metabolism, the, the life of desire, right? All those things being the subject ultimately of biopower. So I, I think that this whole epistemizing of chance which, again, I think scientists have really even moved away from, yeah, it has a very, very dark pedigree in a political project, which you know, maybe finds it, it's, it's nadir in neoliberalism. I mean, we're, I mean <laughs> things can always get worse. But, right. <laughs> um, the way I was going to make that concrete, though, is when you think about financial speculation, right, the really, really sophisticated hedge fund manager or derivatives trader is not really observing the random fluctuations of of the market and then making a kind of algorithmically generated prediction about where to trade the next day. Even though it's sort of advertised to the public as if that's what they're all doing, there's a very simple problem with that, is that if all of the trading firms are all doing that, if they're all looking at the recent past behavior of the market as if it were a random walk and then making bets and adjusting them, you know, based on that statistical history. If everyone was doing that, then, then everyone would essentially be asking for the same price points and no one would want to trade with anyone. Right. And Elie Ayash, who is a, you know, a very sophisticated trader who's also a reader of Mayasu and somebody that I, I use quite a bit in my book to explain this, you know, he, he, he says, you know, no, we, we all take that information. And then when we're actually in the pit, we're actually in conversation with one another, everyone is actually trying to perform a kind of contingency or to introduce a level of chance that is not epistemic, it's ontological. It's the, it has to do with the performativity and the affectivity and the intensity and the speed of the market itself as, as an event. Right. And, so even though even though we're told by the high priests and the preachers of economics, you know that trading is is based on some rational and you know epistemic point of view on on, on data that, that emerge against the background of randomness, it's actually the the animal spirits of the traders themselves that are inflecting the moment of of the encounter enough for there to be any action. And it's interesting because. Uh... What happens is that, and you talk about this in your book, is that you get a kind of a rhetoric, a justification of trading, which says like, well, there's nothing unfair about it. It's all random, right? And yet we accept at the front end that the mechanism is random, but at the back end, we accept the dictates of the system, its ability to designate winners and losers. 
And we accept that and are, and are disciplined to accept that as, you know, the utterance of the God or the utterance of the oracle, as something binding, as something pertaining uh, to reality. You know, some people are winners and some people are losers. We accept that. And yet the disingenuously on a justification that disavows that level of meaning. There's a kind of a, an incoherency, which I think actually faithfully mirrors a kind of incoherency in the modern style of thought. We can't do away with divination. We can't do away with the idea of a fundamentally aleatoric nature of in, intelligibility as such. We can't do away with it, but we can't countenance it either. We can't acknowledge it. And so it almost becomes like this union thing, like a shadow side. What you disavow becomes a shadow side. The idea that neoliberalism represents a kind of um, shadow side of divination is a very interesting thing to me. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the, I have a friend who pretty much taught me everything that I, I know about economics. He, he used to interview traders for um, McKinsey for the, the consulting firm in New York City. And he said that in their kind of monthly debriefing, the traders would play a very interesting game, which was that if, if they had had a, a good month or a sort of, you know, a, above average month or they exceeded their expectations or whatever, they, they would explain in the interview, yeah, I mean, these, are, these are the strategies I use. This is how I did it. But then if if it was a less profitable month, they would say, oh, well, you know, it's the market. It's all random. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And and it speaks to the point that you're you're making there, Phil, which is that there's there's that double game that can always be played. That and it can and it can be flipped around too. If you happen not to be successful financially or economically in this world, you can you know you can be blamed for not having employed a strategy, right? What ends up becoming revealed, right? It's very clear that certain people are in a position to be speculators, and if you are then you get to blame failure on the market. But if you are don't happen to be in a wealth position to be a speculator, if you happen to be a householder or provisioner, which is where most of us are, then there's a script is flipped. And if you become successful, then it was random and lucky and nothing to do with you. And if you're a failure, it was because you failed to be economically rational. That's right. So it's basically, I mean, it, <laughs> it's this authoritarianism of, of wealth and class that is, that is just totally elegantly mapped behind this pseudo-scientific mien of a putatively neutral game space, you know, which is, uh, of course, as we know, is, is, is radically um, asymmetrical for all the reasons that, that Marx and Karl Polanyi had, had always said that it, that it would be, you know. There's, um, in your critique, which I, which I, I agree with, so you, you basically said that this whole take on the idea of chance and, uh, and randomness and this obfuscation or this like burying of the divinatory act underneath a kind of uh, deterministic science or a claim to knowledge about, you know, the variables involved in process X. And you've basically said that this would support Foucault's idea that in the end, the sciences of man are about reducing human beings to kind of cogs, right? To like just elements in a process. And that's, that's certainly when, when, a, when a speculator looks at a market, let's say the rice market, uh, he, he doesn't see persons acting in the world. He sees uh, units on a game board. He sees, you know, it's like the old thing about you know, the, the general looking at his map and seeing the troops and just basically de there's a dehumanizing effect to this sort of thinking, right? So is this the point? Is, is the idea, the, the goal of this on some level, like in negating divination as a, an operative procedure in, in reality, in negating that, is it a, a bid for control over bodies, humans, people? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think this is where the general product of modernity and, and capitalism is an extension of, of patriarchy on some level. If you think about patriarchy as this, attempt to order who belongs to whom and who who has power and authority by way of a kind of you know abstract naming and, and claiming that is disconnected from the, the, the physical and biological transmission of bodies through through women and through through the womb you know 
Mm. Um, there's a very serious set of links, you know, between patriarchy, imperialism in general, capitalism in particular, and, you know, modernity as defined by Foucault. The, the quest for order and control then is not what's new. It's certainly not what's new with neoliberalism. What, what I'm trying to, to point out is that perhaps part of what gets clarified or, or the genie that sort of gets out of the bottle with neoliberalism is the pseudo-scientificity of sort of economy and governance, let's say, which was presented in many ways as a kind of democratizing and egalitarian on some level, you know, project. That ruse, I think, gets exposed. And that's part of, I think, what we're living with through Trump and through neo-authoritarianism is they're trying to stay out, you know, the powers of be are trying to stay out ahead of the curve even by kind of doubling down on the authoritarianism, right? Mm. In, in a way, my, my book was already a kind of, uh, <laughs> it was a story about what neoliberalism was, <laughs> Because in many ways, I think the cat is, is clearly out of the bag. You know, I think everybody knows now that it was an authoritarian right. project all along. But we were seduced into it partly because, and this is the main thesis of the book, is that because of our archaic experience with social order of many, many, many kinds, despite the pretensions to a kind of institutionally rationalistic administrative view of populations and statistics and, you know, the whole kind of fantasy of both socialist planning and capitalist nanny state democracy, this idea that we can, yeah, stand back from populations, stand back from events and, and create, you know, policies and protocols that can be sort of implemented by anyone who happens to be in power. I think that what we're, con what we're being remote is that there, you know, almost like in a Carl Schmittian sense, there, there are these sovereignties, maybe there's, a, you know, a thousand tiny sovereignties, right, that are going on now hideously at the border and at the level of the police, you know, and each each of these figures is, they have the right to divine. They have the right to divine whether someone is threatening or not. You remember, remember Darren Wilson, you know, he came, he said about Michael Brown, he came at me with a demon in his eye, you know, he's mm -hmm. exercising a kind of shamanic authority in that moment to say, this is threatening to the life and health of the community and I get to act upon it directly, right? The, the idea is that with the rise of something like the extreme powers of financial capitalism, which is most obviously something like a parody of divination, you know, where you're, you know, you're staring at these screens and you're, I mean, in many cases, they literally, those firms literally um, have mediums and psychics on their staff. I don't know if you guys know that, but this is, you know, this is just written about all the time in the in paper. There's that, but, but what the, the larger point is, is that if you look into it historically, and this is why I did so much of a kind of historical study using Vico and using references back even to Jewish rabbinic culture and so on. They're, even in the West, right, and let alone talking about you know non-Western civilizations and, and pre-modern civilizations, but even in the West, whether you're talking about the Roman Empire or the Jewish diaspora or even, uh, yeah, right up to, you know, Wall Street psychics, we simply don't have any familiarity as human beings with social orders that don't involve a, a divinatory moment where someone is authorized to solicit more than human knowledge, a, a, a knowledge that exceeds all of the research, all the homework you could possibly do. And, you know, the, the incredible power of that role and the necessity of that role is, is as you were saying, Phil, is, is precisely what we've been um, in denial of throughout modernity. And I'm, and I'm far from the first person to say this. I mean, Max Weber, his whole fascination with charisma and the way that charisma is needed to, to buttress administration, you know, he's making a similar point. You know, I was obviously trying to sharpen it in the context of, of neoliberalism. You know, the, the rationalist response to all of this might be to say, well, then the policy consequence of what you're saying is we need to try harder to expunge this appeal to non-human or extra-rational sources of authority. Yeah, actually, I was going to, just to build on that point, Bill, is I was going to say that, you know, there's one way of responding to the, the, let's say, the universality of the divinatory moment. It's always present. Well, most people today would say, well, that's because that's human nature. You know, humans resort to non-rational, you know, 
ways yeah. of it must be it must be very comforting for people to right. seek a sanction of non-human intelligences yeah that kind of shit but what we're getting at here is 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 different it's not that it's human nature to resort to divination but that reality requires a divinatory moment if it's exactly. to be honored as such right that's right you know and it's very interesting to argue about that i mean my the way that i argue for that claim at an ontological level is is you know, roughly along the lines of what we were talking about earlier with with Maya Sue, I think there are good metaphysical grounds. Paradoxically, there are good, very good rational grounds for dealing with the, the, the full scope of the non-rational. I mean, many, many philosophers before me, you know, have made this point too. I mean, Charles Peirce, as you mentioned, you know, a full acknowledgement of the sort of a kind of divinatory moment at the level of, of abduction when you're trying to decide which which hypothesis to test. You know that's not something that is that you can derive from the data, right? Because you're going to you're going to determine what the, which data matter based on a kind of abductive inference to what you think is worth investigating, which possibility is is more likely. And that more is not something that can be that can be verified in advance of the results of the experiment that you're going to undertake. So there's a kind of there's a circularity mm-hmm. there that that's just we can't escape. So the smart rationalists and the rationalists that I have time for and willing to talk to, I think that the, the real distinction they want to make comes down to the question of whether whether we should extend something like the protocols of the scientific community as such versus something like protocols of you know faith communities or folk traditions or maybe you know indigenous wisdom traditions right so i think ultimately that there's a deeply political uh, argument there uh, obviously i think we do need to be kind of relinquishing a certain fantasy that scientificity as such. I mean, I'm totally not against science. I mean, in fact, I want there to be more science, not less. Um, Hmm. Because, I mean, you you really only get to the truly interesting divinatory questions once you have truly exhausted your powers of observation, your powers of, of inference. I mean, Divination is never supposed to be used as a substitute for those things. I mean, right, that's right. that's a total misread, even of what goes on at the level of, say, you know, a kind of traditional healer. Um, I mean, for instance, the whole tradition of Chinese medicine is is much more radically empirical than the Western tradition. I mean, it's it's, be, it's built on centuries and centuries and centuries of observation that are then you know brought into a sort of metaphysical framework within which the techniques of acupuncture and other you know, ways of, of operating on on health are are, are employed, right? I, I actually think <laughs> I actually think that, that on some level, at this point, it's almost a matter of empirical observation that a kind of detached I mean, this is gonna sound really cliched, I'm I'm sorry, I know everyone says this, but this kind of detached view of of a mind as being separable from it's sort of desiring imbrication in, in what it's observing. It doesn't even matter if that point of view is sort of right or wrong at a, a kind of philosophical level. It's, I think it's sort of patently obvious that that perspective is nothing short of suicidal at a kind of ecosystemic and, and social level. I mean, it just seems to me that that's just increasingly patently obvious. Right. Well, we we've talked we talked about that last time, uh, Phil. With uh, we're, we're discussing William James's essay, "Does Consciousness Exist?" And we talked a lot about how you can't have mind outside of uh, some kind of um, emotional, passionate, time-bound investment in a real moment. Like there's no such thing as unextended mind and separated from reality. So, right. and and just to posit that as a possibility has political implications. You chose to start your Mayasu paper with a passage from Charles Peirce that I, I wanted to read because it's, I, I just love it. You quote, 
The instincts connected with the need for, of nutrition have furnished all animals with some virtual knowledge of space and force and make them applied physicists. The instincts connected with sexual reproduction have furnished all animals at all like ourselves with some virtual comprehension of the mind of other animals of their kind so that they are applied psychists. Now, not only our accomplished science, but even our scientific questions have been pretty exclusively limited to the development of those two branches of natural knowledge. There may, for aught we know, be a thousand other kinds of relationship which have as much to do with connecting phenomena and leading from one to, to another as dynamical and social relationships have. Astrology, magic, ghosts, prophecies serve as suggestions of what those relationships might be. What I like about that is the acknowledgement that the universe is just ontologically, intrinsically more complex than a particular scientific paradigm can kind of surmise, that there's always more going on, and that it's at the level where we hit the limits of our knowledge and, and, and touch on that infinite more that we need or that we can resort to practices that lie outside of that paradigm. So that at some point, if you can't take meaning out of the universe, meaning is always a factor in an event. And that flies in the face of the fundamental assumptions of modern thought. So I just, yeah. I just like that idea that no matter how much we try, that magical fact, that magic factor, that wild card, that kind of fool, that unnumbered fool in the tarot deck is always present and always calling us to recognize the infinite more that's always involved in any apprehension of the real. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's beautifully said. Beautifully said, JF. I mean, the thing I just want to emphasize, on some level, I mean, I would describe myself as a hyper-rationalist. I mean, I'm hyper-rationalistic in the sense that I actually think that, let's say, shamanic you know, dreaming techniques and, and healing techniques explore empirical realms other than those of, of space and force, which is what Hertz is talking about, right? He's not saying that there's a problem with the scientific method. He's saying that the problem is that we've limited the domain to which we think science applies. Exactly. No, no, that's that's a good good precision. And and I mean space and force are the framework of modernity. You know, the the ultimate reality is, you know, just space and force. We have to reduce everything to space and force to have anything like like knowledge and of course the model for that is mathematical knowledge right you know we, we've been in the business now of trying to convert this planet and its full complexity into something like pure space and force and we're doing a pretty good job actually <laughs> unfortunately the other the other important point i think is that this is the other thing that i, that I disagreed with mayasu on is that the the quote-unquote outside of our knowledge of space and force relations which can be articulated mathematically, is really not some incredibly vague land of, of mystery and the unknown. Right. And I mean, unfortunately, unfortunately, kind of, there's a whole stream in kind of French phenomenology of religion that has built up this kind of uh, cloudiness and fogginess around the non-rational. I mean, the, the non-rational has been and continues to be, be a very specific question. It's a question of desire. It's a question of power. It's a question of right relationship between entities that are not in direct communication with one another. I mean, these are very, very specific domains. There's also art and aesthetics is also part of that too, right? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, the, the, the appropriateness of the aesthetics and of course, all these domains are, are literally the subject of thousands of years of, of human research at the level of practice. And again, I mean, I think that there's a declaration of war between a kind of imperializing, colonizing modernity, which which is not only capitalistic, but also, I think, patriarchal, that is distorting the very specific and, and in some ways not all that grandiose claims of divinatory wisdom or shamanic healing or, you know, women's intuition or in indigenous earthways. And that's, that for me is the heart of the problem because it, it, there are very, very, very profound political implications to, to letting go of the modernist ontology. 
you know, against the imaginary, my, my imaginary uh, skeptic who says, well, you know, what you're talking about, the persistence of archaic forms of knowing and it's their illegitimate use in contemporary society simply argues for redoubled vigilance against all such archaic survivals. That that is clearly not what you are enjoining and what you end up where you end up with in politics of divination is suggesting a kind of decolonization of divination. Divination is one thing where we actually can take it back. They can pull this uh, cosmic-sized three-card Monty game on us, but divination is always, to some extent, something that we have at our disposal. At the end of your Contingency Without Unreason essay, uh, the very last footnote, somehow I never noticed this footnote until today, it seems as if here we are getting into kind of a statement of like, what, where do we go from here? I mean, okay, so we're using I, these ideas to understand what's wrong. But, you know, the logical next question is, what do we do about it? And what you write, and this is in response to Deleuze, who is arguing that humor at the end of the day is always going to be a part of divination and part of the kind of the moral framework that divination supplies. You write, and this finally is where health and humor might take on the status of absolute conditions for existence. Divination is neither merely ludic nor simply perverse, unless playful polymorphous perversity defines existence as such. And if it does, then the humorous dimension of existence has no real contrast. The ethics of the logic of sense could then be read no longer as a logic of perversion, but as a survival mandate. Occupy and practice divination. I really like that. Survival mandate, occupy and practice divination. And I wanted to hear a little bit more about that because, because that resonates strongly with me. You know, one of the things about the word humor, right, is that it's, it's connected to the same root that we get the word hummus for, and it, it has to do with earth or earthiness. We say that people have a good sense of humor, they're, they're earthy, you know. We know, obviously, we know how important laughter and joy is for health. But there's also a profound way in which, you know, all of the religious traditions, whether it's Buddhism or the monotheisms or indigenous wisdoms, they, they don't oppose joy to, to suffering or humor to suffering, right? I mean, you, we're not going to, yeah. to fix, fix the problem of suffering because we discover humor or we engage, you know, in, in joy. In fact, you know, Another problem with modernity, too, is that it is claiming to somehow protect us from suffering or relieve us from, at least some of us, from certain kinds of suffering, you know. Or, or, or even, or not even something so exalted as helping us out of suffering, but simply making us safe. You know, the bitch goddess of safety. That's right. That's right. And of course, the more obsessed we are with that, the more unhappy we are with that, because because we're obviously not here to be well, I think it's obvious that we're not here to be safe, that, that being safe is an injunction to die, basically. I mean, only the dead are safe. Um, <laughs> yep. Yeah, and, and so I do think that a kind of polymorphous perversity is just defining this. I mean, and on, you could push this and say, we are chance, you know? I mean, chance is just, <laughs> we are. I'm a chance, you're a chance, we're all, we're all a chance. Um, and I do think that there's a way in which, you know, I use the word occupy there in that footnote, because I was thinking about the Occupy movement. And what Occupy said was, we're not going to tell you what we want or how to write policy for us because we want a chance to find out who we would be or what we would be without having to ask you, the state, for permission or without having to, you know, ask you, the state, to write policy for us or plan for us or whatever, right? So the the demand for chance is a demand for survival. And it is something that we do by in, insisting on our existence in, in the way that I think Occupy did. Um, in a way, you could also see Occupy as a performance of a certain kind of divinatory right. Like, you just, you wait and see what arises or emerges from that that confluence, right? Um, and, you know, that, that's precisely what the traders are doing on a day-to-day -day basis. They're just showing up each day to trade. They have the leisure, they have the, the drugs, they have the protection, everything that is needed to show up playfully. You know, I mean, I'm sure you guys have seen The Wolf of Wall Street, right? I mean, it's just being a, a trader is just this endless party, you know, to kind of move back to where you started, Phil. 
you know, we, we, some of us anyway, thought that we could use the, the relative safety or the temporary refuge of academic life in its at least putatively non-capitalist, if, if not anti-capitalist framework as a, as a place to show up and occupy, as a place to, to divine, to encounter each other and to see what would come up. Clearly that, you know, has been under full scale assault for a long time. But again, like with the whole question about shouldn't we just try to eliminate the divinatory moment from, from who we are, I guess I, I would fall back again and again on the fact that even even something like scientists, as they're drawn together in, in the particular traditions and experimental sites where they gather, again, are, are placing themselves in in a position to, to transcend their expectations by being together. I don't know if there's a better definition for human community than that. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm reminded that we'll have to, we'll have to, to stop here, but I'm reminded of that line from, uh, from the Zarathustra Nietzsche, you know, um, a famous line, um, you must have chaos in yourselves to give birth to a dancing star. I say to you, you still have chaos in yourselves. Well, it seems like movements like Occupy are those playful moments or the moments where we discover or we remember that we still have chaos in ourselves. And chaos being whether you want to characterize it as as real ontological chance or as just the, that feminine openness of the new, whatever. It's It seems like a lot of these, like Occupy was very much about awakening that and reopening that space, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the maybe one of the interesting shifts from, say, the early New Age movements of the 60s and 70s to to today is that um, this isn't entirely fair, but maybe on some level the search for meaning and systems of meaning outside of the Western monotheisms and Western rationalism was in some ways a kind of aesthetic enterprise that certain segments of wealthier or privileged you know, white people could sort of trace off and do. I, I think... In the situation that we're in now, these alternative wisdom traditions are no longer just kind of like options for people to, you know, dress themselves up with, although although all of that is still going on. And, you know, there's a kind of spiritual industrial complex that's pretty horrifying at this point. But I think that as we get deeper into ecological crisis, I think it does become clearer and clearer that as you know, Vanessa Andriotti puts it a reference her earlier that in an interview she says, you know, we have to learn to walk with the storm, not ahead of it and not behind it. And I think that there is some way in which indigenous cultures that have bound their lives much more intimately to the changes, the constant changes in uh, in the earth and in life around them, really show us the way for our survival at this point. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also find us on Twitter. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening. Thank you.